Please note, this episode contains discussions on the topic of sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised. When news that Theodore McCarrick had abused seminarians and minors broke in June 2018, most of the students at the Catholic University of America were on summer vacation. The chaplain for the university, Franciscan Father Jude D'Angelo, was worried about how the news would affect the students. So the welcome back mass uh, that year, I really felt that um, I could not avoid uh, a discussion about the crisis, and I made it the subject of my homily. That evening, Father Jude stood before hundreds of gathered students in the Great Hall of the Prisbola Center and revealed to them something he had never talked about before in public. His own brother had been sexually abused by a priest. My brother uh, works in a, in a Catholic church, and he shared with the people of his parish uh, his experience of being sexually abused as a young man. And his wife also shared her experience of what she believes about God and the church and all of that. And, and I read that to our students. And then I wanted to talk about my personal response to that revelation from my brother and how it affected my entire family. Father Jude's brother hadn't told his family about the abuse until he was an adult, and Father Jude was already ordained. When my brother told me about all of this, I was at my parents' home uh, when he talked about it. Um, so on the way back to my assignment, um, which at that time was in New Jersey, I literally had to pull off the road to really just wretch uh, because it was such a physical reaction uh, to this terrible experience that my brother went through and that my family was going through. I was angry, angry at God, definitely angry at the priest uh, that had done this uh, to my brother and who had betrayed everything that I believe in about priesthood. And then, you know, there was a numbness that set in when I thought about him after a while. Uh, he was not in active ministry anymore, but there was really uh, not a good response from the diocese for my brother. The priest who abused Father Jude's brother died a few years later. And I remember thinking to myself at that time, like, I don't feel anything. I don't feel angry. I don't feel vengeance. I don't feel anything. And it was at that point, I think, that God really intervened uh, in a direct way in my heart to realize that I was allowing uh, this to deaden my priesthood in a, in a real way. And that if I was going to be if I was going to be anything, I, I had to be a person who was going to bring healing as best I can to at least, if you will, be a midwife uh, for healing for other people. And that homily, I think, was my, my Rubicon. I knew I had to cross that. I knew I had to give that homily um, in order to really minister to our students. I asked Father Jude if we could share an excerpt of his homily on our podcast. He told me he never kept it. 
it was too personal. Father Jude's story highlights an aspect of the clergy abuse crisis that is easy to lose sight of, that clergy members and their families are sometimes also abuse survivors. We tend to see survivors over here, clergy over there, but things are rarely so simple. This is Crisis, Clergy Abuse in the Catholic Church. I'm Karna Lozoya. In this episode, I wanted to learn more about how priests have been affected by the crisis. I'm not talking about predator priests, but the vast majority of priests who've never been accused of sexual abuse. Innocent priests felt the same anger and outrage as the rest of the church, but they've also felt something else, a collective sense of responsibility for the sins and crimes committed by their own brother priests. If the abuse crisis has been a betrayal of trust for the laity, for the clergy, it's been a double betrayal. In October 2019, the Catholic Project hosted an event at Catholic University called Shepherds to a Wounded Flock. It featured four priests speaking about their experience of the abuse crisis. We'll put a link to the video in our show notes. One of the priests on that panel, Father Paul Scalia, is the vicar for clergy in the Diocese of Arlington. He recalled a moment that stood out to him from the summer of 2018. When the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report uh, came out, because of my job at the diocese as vicar for clergy, uh, we had to go through the report and see if any of the priests named in there had served in Arlington. And so that, that's not, that's not happy reading, uh, that report. And so I remember at the, the, going back to my residence at the end of the day and just, just trying to relax. And where I lived then had a adoration chapel right around the corner. And so I thought, well, this is probably a pretty good time to go to the door of the Lord. And so I, um, and I reached for my collar to put my collar back on. And it's the first time I, in my priesthood that I, I actually hesitated because I'd be, you know, walking along the street and, and I did put the collar on. Uh, but I remember it struck me that was the, the first time in my priesthood I've ever hesitated to, to go out in public with, with the Roman collar on. When I interviewed Father Scalia for this podcast, he told me another story, one that provides a telling contrast. The famous story of um, uh, the conversion of Alec Guinness. Uh, he was playing Father Brown in, um, you know, in the, the movies, the Father Brown Mysteries. And so he was on set in France, and he was dressed as a Roman Catholic priest. And the story is that he stepped off the set. I guess he went outside, and, and he's dressed as a Roman Catholic priest in France. And this little boy comes up and, like, takes his hand and starts just prattling on in French. And Alec Guinness just, uh, the story is that he just, he didn't say a thing because he knew once he opened his mouth, the gig was up and the boy would know, <laughs> this is not, you know, this is not mon père. And, uh, but what struck Alec Guinness was that this boy had such automatic trust in the minister of the church that he could just come up to a man that he had never met before and, and be so at ease and confident. There is still just the sadness that that an element of distrust has been inserted into the relationship between a, the priest and his people, and then also between you know the people and the bishops, the priests and the bishops. And so there's just this this atmosphere of distrust and uh, and of mutual suspicion. 
According to the most recent data available, around 95% of priests in this country have never had an allegation of this sort made against them. The point is, the vast majority of priests look at abusive priests with the same shock and horror as the rest of us. The difference is that innocent priests get painted with the same brush as the guilty ones. As the church has rightly learned to take allegations of sexual abuse more seriously, many priests feel vulnerable to false accusations. Have you been acquainted with a priest who has been accused of sexual abuse or or guilty of it in your ministry? Oh, yes. Um, Yeah, several friends of mine and... um, uh, in neither case, actually, uh, were they was it was it substantiated. There it is again that sort of that 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 difficulty of what happens when when, when an allegation comes to someone and and how and how do you do that and especially in this day and age where um, well we had one priest just recently who who was uh, who, allegations were brought against him and we notified the authorities and it was uh, it was announced at parishes where he had served, which is kind of standard operating procedure as far as I can tell. But as as things went on, it, it was never substantiated. Uh, the charges were all dropped, and he was returned to ministry. And of course, we put out a press release. We put that, you know, in our paper, and 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 now he, he's he's serving again. And so, I thank God that 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 he is, because uh, I think that was a sign to all the other priests that just because somebody brings an allegation doesn't necessarily mean it's the end of the road for the priest, because there there is due process. And I, I think that. That is one of the biggest concerns for priests. Is there due process? Priests are reading about, you know, uh, allegations against priests, and they're wondering, is the same thing going to happen to me? And although I wish it had never happened to this one, one priest I have in mind, uh, at least in in that whole situation, there was due process, uh, you know, kind of had his day in court, if you will, and uh, and now he's back in ministry. What's that like for a priest to go through that? I, I think it's hell. I think it's hell. Because it is, um, well, first of all, he can't be a priest. He can't function as a priest. He can't be with his people. He can't administer the sacraments. Um, saying mass alone gets old. And then there's, you know, a man, a, a man can do without a lot, but to do without your good name, I mean, at the end of the day, that's all we have. It's all we have. You can take away everything else, but uh, especially a priest, in order to admit to minister effectively, you need your good name. And so to have that tarnished is uh, extraordinarily painful. And not just tarnished, but I mean taken away completely. I think it, it was again the, the 2002, then 2018. It was something about the one-two punch. It was just like, "Are you kidding me? You know, why am I still ashamed to be Catholic? You know, I'm sick and tired of being ashamed of being Catholic." Father Carter Griffin, he's the rector of the John Paul II Seminary for the Archdiocese of Washington, across the street from Catholic University. I certainly share the frustration of like, why does it always seem to be that the secular media has to be the one that forces us to address these problems? Like, why can't there be an internal like sense of like, we need reform and renewal from within and it can't, it doesn't have to be forced upon us because we want it ourselves. So there was certainly some anger, I think, on a, on a part of a lot of priests and myself as well. And I sort of felt like for the first time that people wanted to hear that, you know, in their priests. They wanted to hear priests who were upset by this. Uh, and that, and that's, in, in, in a way, good, uh, but it also can lead to difficulties and even abuses, where you started to have priests who sort of started to feed the anger, you know, and, and, and they were kind of just almost stoking the anger and throwing gasoline on the fire. 
for Father Griffin, the scandals that broke in 2018 included a more personal reason to feel angry and betrayed. But the bigger thing, of course, would be uh, McCarrick, right? McCarrick ordained me to the priesthood. So that's kind of the, the elephant in the living room here. I was his last priest secretary. I spent nine months as his priest secretary. I even called a friend of mine in Newark, I remember, when I was first assigned as priest secretary. And I said, have you heard anything about this beach house? I mean, the rumors, by the way, that I had heard were not any abuse. It was always just like that whole beach house or whatever, and that he would sleep in the same bed with seminarians, but no sexual. You know, that's what I had heard. So and I think that was the more common rumor out there. I remember I talked to this priest of mine. He's like, yeah, I heard that rumor. I said, do you know anyone who was at this beach house with him? And he says, no, I don't. So I, I don't know. I just didn't, you know, it's, it was hard to know what to believe one. You hear a lot of rumors. That doesn't mean that they're true. I figured that there's no way they would have promoted <laughs> I, I mean, I was like one of these, like, there's no way. Let's, even self-serving, they would have promoted him if any of this stuff was true. Certainly before making him Archbishop of Washington, you would have looked into this thing. And obviously I was naive, you know, and I think a lot of us were uh, thinking that they would have taken due diligence and really looked into these rumors and these concerns and drilled down to the bottom and see if there's anything to them. And if they had, then all of this wouldn't have happened, right? And what was your reaction when you, you kind of, you realized the extent of his abuse? Yeah, just, I mean... Just anger that that this happened, you know. I mean, that that the people who had responsibility for for making sure that the right people are made, you know, are, are made the bishop, my bishop, were asleep at the switch, right? That they didn't take seriously reputable people who were writing to them. We now know, you know, and saying this is a problem. You need to look into this. But the fact is that you know these things were just not dealt with seriously. So I think the first is a sense of anger. The second, I suppose, would be kind of betrayal. You know, like, I am tainted with this guy. He ordained me. He assigned me as his pre-secretary, which was, I mean, a horrible job. I, anyway, <laughs> you know, nobody, you want, my first priest assignment was essentially being, driving him around and keeping his count, which is fine. I mean, obedience, that's what I promised, and I'm happy to do that. But I mean, what guy being ordained doesn't want to go to a parish and spend three or five years and serve it? That's what I was, had been dreaming of, you know, and, and to do. So, so I think, yeah, there was a sense of kind of anger and betrayal, kind of being associated with, with him and with, with this stuff uh, from his past. And then I think just kind of at, as a priest, like really my heart is broken for the number of people that have left the church, you know, and left their faith and, and are no longer practicing. I mean, we see the ripple effect of sin and that souls may die because of this. You know, the ripple effect, it's more like a, like a tsunami. You know, it comes out and it just sort of crashes over and just sucks a lot of people in with it. And so that sense of kind of not just anger and betrayal from my part, but just kind of having a broken heart for those who have been affected by this and who are just disgusted by this and have just walked away from, even from the Lord. And they think they're walking away from McCarrick, but they're not. They're walking away from Jesus. You know? And that's what, that's what is so hard, I think. Father Griffin began his priestly ministry, serving as a secretary to a man with a long history of preying on young men, including seminarians. Now, Father Griffin is responsible for training a future generation of priests, men whose own priestly ministries will be burdened, to one degree or another, by the legacy of men like McCarrick. I asked Father Griffin what the mood at the seminary was during the summer of 2018. The guys were actually on a little weekend of recollection that we do at the end of our orientation week. And so as soon as that recollection was over, we basically said, this is, you're going to see this in the news when you, you know, because they don't use their phones and stuff like that. 
And, you know, we're here to talk about it. And we all kind of, we all talked about what was going in, on in our, inside ourselves and the, the faculty members, ourselves, and sort of the frustrations and things like that. And uh, sort of giving them, in a sense, permission to do the same, you know, to, to speak very openly and honestly. Uh, and they did. The, these young guys are pretty extraordinary who are stepping forward in today's day and age to give their lives to the Lord. Uh, and I saw that resiliency and that faith and that that courage, really, uh, to stick with it in this. We, there were one or two guys, but really only one or two guys who left because of this. They just, I think they just sort of said, I just can't really trust, you know? And so they, they, they left. And I understand that. But surprisingly few, I thought. Every priest, before he's ordained, attends seminary. The education he receives there is often referred to as priestly formation. It's an education that has a profound effect on how a man understands and lives out his priesthood. As the sexual abuse crisis has unfolded, people have often pointed to reports of sexual promiscuity and abuse in the seminaries to explain the origins of priestly misconduct. Seminaries have changed a lot since clerical abuse peaked in the 1970s, and many of these changes happened as abuse declined in the 1980s and 90s. The line here between correlation and causation is blurry, but it's worth taking a few minutes to look more closely at how priestly formation in seminaries has evolved. Remember, in seminaries, it was all rule-based, you know, and it was secure in that there was a rhythm of life. And the men that entered it knew exactly what that would look like, and they had their times, their routines, and their schedules. And then all of a sudden, everything went upside down. Christina Lynch, former director of psychological services for St. John Vianney Seminary in Denver, Colorado. She's talking about a dramatic shift seminaries experienced in the 60s and 70s. You might have heard this before, but that was when society and even the church entered into the sexual revolution. Rock and roll, drugs, I grew up, I can tell you all about this. Vietnam War, Nixon's resignation, and then even the spirit of Vatican II. And you take all of that together, and it led to a, a widespread spirit of rebellion. And even that spirit entered the church. And it was the rebellion was to go against all the rules and regulations. And so now philosophy and theology and liturgy and architecture and music, everything, even the hairstyles changed. If you look at pictures of seminarians back then, uh, they went from this rigid high-collar to all of a sudden, now we've got some long hair and all sorts of things going on. They didn't know how to, to live in this changing environment that was going on in seminary formation. And it just created total chaos. In 1992, Pope John Paul II issued a new document on seminary formation titled Pastores Dabo Vobis. It was another tectonic shift. This was a radical reformation of priestly formation. And that's when he first came and emphasized that there should be four distinct but united dimensions of priestly formation. And that's the intellectual, the human, the spiritual, and the pastoral. And he also recognized the value of human sciences like psychology, which was a great boost to the church. But he also knew it was important to have psychologists who understood the value of church teaching and had a Catholic anthropology that was behind that. I don't think that that term human formation was said before Pastoris Dabovobi. Father Carter Griffin. That idea, he put it smack, you know, right in front of you, right on the radar, right on, the, on one of the primary 
purposes of a seminary is not just to form men who pray, not just for men who know theology or are able to do pastoral work, but first of all, to form men. So I think we try to build, you know, intellectually, but also at the level of the heart and building good habits. We're trying to build good habits, trying to give them some space to grow and freedom, trying to give them the intellectual tools to know how to grow uh, and also kind of the accompaniment with them and spiritual direction and information, which hopefully enables them to detach themselves from that hypersexualized culture and really then learn to be somebody who can provide a more beautiful way of life you know, to, to exemplify it themselves for their, for their people one day. The process of assessing and screening candidates for the priesthood became more rigorous right around the time the first big wave of the abuse crisis hit in 2002. It shifted more from an educational assessment or just intellectual, as we would say, to more emotional IQ and more of a forensic evaluation. And when I say forensic evaluation, I mean that the tests that were administered uh, were evaluating the whole person, uh, not just academically, but also humanly, and also in some cases spiritually as well. We want to assess whether any past negative, serious behaviors or addictions might be indicative of any future dangerous behaviors. What are the different tests that are administered? Like, what does that day look like? When they go in for their evaluation, they would meet with the psychologist who would conduct a clinical interview. And that's a history of their life for the most part. It would include everything in their family of origin, any issues. Um, it would also include uh, their psychosexual history. It's all about developmental issues. What we have found with so many men today that there's a lot of confusion in their male identity. They might have been exposed to something as a child or young. And you know, most abuse actually hand, uh, occurs in families uh, more than anywhere else. And therefore, we have to assess, you know, is there been any situation that could have contributed to a, you know, a lack of confidence in their own male confident, you know, identity. We also conduct personality tests because it's very important for the man to understand, to know himself so that he can help if there's any particular features or traits in his personality that maybe need to be healed. Um, that might even require some processing in maybe counseling or just spiritual direction. We also do academic tests to see where they are in their IQ. And this is purely to help them identify strengths and weaknesses in their academic life so we can help them thrive in academics when and if they are accepted into seminary. Even the best seminary formation isn't a panacea against the plague of abuse. There is no perfect screening process. There is no infallible formation program. Seminarians and priests are as human as anyone. That's why the reforms in seminary formation have been so important. To live out his priesthood, even the best priest will need to rely on the support and accountability of the community that forms him and to which he belongs. The great gift of fraternity is that brotherhood which can build up and can lead to virtue and, you know, kind of a healthy competition of holiness and supporting each other in hard times and the whole thing. Uh, the flip side and the negative side to it is it can lead to kind of the old boys club kind of thing, you know, where you kind of protect each other. And th that undoubtedly has happened. And it happens anywhere. I mean, it happens in any group setting where you have people who are bound together, whether it's the, 
the, the tribe or the bowling club. It doesn't matter. Like if there's an, an association of people, there's going to be a certain amount of protecting your own. And even that is not all bad. I mean, there's a kind of a loyalty and a kind of sense of, you know, and, and yet it, it went totally awry in the case of this priestly brotherhood when priests were protecting other priests who were doing horrible things to people, you know? I mean, it's like there's, a, there's no greater corruption of that fraternity than when that fraternity gets used basically at the service of vice and of damaging and wounding other people. It's really demonic when you see that, you know, the, how the thing was just turned on its head. One way to ensure a healthy fraternity between priests is to train them early on fraternal correction, which is essentially giving and taking criticism. Father Griffin spoke about how he works to make fraternal correction part of seminary life. One of the things is that we just made the resolution that no matter how good these guys are, and some of them are pretty extraordinarily good, way better than I am, you know, but it's just, no matter how good a guy is, they are all getting correction from us. And they're going to be encouraged to do fraternal correction. The idea is None of us is perfect, you know, and we all need to have correction. Uh, and if you just get used to it, then it's no big deal. In other words, building a culture in which fraternal correction is not like, you know, DEFCON 1. I mean, it's just like, it's just a brother helping a brother. Uh, and that, I think if that's built and inculcated way early on from day one in the seminary, then I think that that will bear a lot of fruit later on. Uh, and, you know, guys will be a lot less kind of prickly and, and sensitive to being corrected by brothers. This need for fraternal correction extends to bishops, too. It's one thing to establish mutual accountability on a small scale at the parish level. But what if you're in charge of a huge archdiocese with hundreds of priests and millions of parishioners? Hot diggity. You got us? We're on. All right. My name is Timothy Michael Dolan, and I'm the Cardinal Archbishop of New York. Delighted to be with you, Karna. Thank you. There are over 2.6 million Catholics in the Archdiocese of New York. And there are almost 700 diocesan priests. There are a few sayings about what happens when you become a bishop. One of them is that it's the last day anyone tells you the truth. With an archdiocese of this size, Cardinal Dolan needs others to tell him when he's made a mistake. It's rooted in the gospel, where Jesus asks us not only to encourage one another positively, but to challenge one another when we're failing to live up to the noble demands of the gospel. And I'll tell my priest that. I'll say, I need to apologize to you if I have ever hurt you. And I hope I've never done it intentionally. But I'm urging you, if you ever see anything that I do that hurts you or your people or the church or something that you think is ill-advised, I promise you, I will not hold it against you for coming to see me. And I'm grateful that priests do. Several of the clergy I've spoken with have talked about the fraternal bond they share with each other. Bishops have told me their priests are like their sons. But in some cases, the sexual abuse crisis has created a rift in the relationship between a bishop and his priests, a rift that may make it harder for either side to be open with the other. In 2002, the bishops adopted the Dallas Charter, which included a zero-tolerance policy against priests who had abused minors. Even a single credible allegation of abuse can end a priest ministry permanently. See, Karna... And what weighed on us very, very much is that, number one, what does this do to the gospel mandate of mercy? And number two, what is it going to do to our pivotal relationship of trust and paternity with our beloved priests? 
Our priests look to their bishops as pastors, as shepherds, as older brothers, as fathers. And what is that going to do to the trust that we have? And I would say to you, Karna, that that apprehension and worry was well-placed because 20 years later, we're still struggling with that. Because I'm afraid what has happened is now a bishop uh, who's supposed to be looked upon as the good shepherd, as a father, an older brother, is now looked upon as a disciplinarian and a, a policeman. And that hurts us. And that hurts our relationship with our priests. Priests became they second-guessed their natural tendency to go to their bishop in any kind of trouble. Zero tolerance for abuse may make priests less likely to confide in their bishops about other matters. If a priest has has had a fall and, and violated the sixth commandment of the Decalogue, and his own promise of celibacy with a woman? Is he going to come tell me? I hope he does, because that wouldn't remove him from the priesthood. But priests are reluctant. You see what I mean? They're worried. They're saying, oh, no, our, our, our bishops are out to get us. And a good number of our priests felt that we bishops were so desperate to restore our credibility with our people that we were doing it on the backs of priests. Does that make any sense? It's almost like our priest said, you know what? You bishops are the ones that reassigned abusers. Why don't you be strict on one another? But you're kind of trying to regain credibility by getting strict with us. You need to get strict with others. That will come where we've gotten as strict uh, among one another and with ourselves as we have with priests. But I don't want to exaggerate it, Karna, because... um, In some ways, priests and bishops have gotten closer because we're all going through this trauma together. I mean, our priests, you know, who have seen men that they've known their whole lives all of a sudden removed and who never knew anything about it. Our priests who hear late night comedians uh, mocking the priests and and, and painting them all as, as perverts. Uh, our priests who have to listen to the commercials about the lawsuits now uh, with the statutes of, of limitations. Our priests who know that some of their people have left and look look at them uh, with, uh, with, with kind of a, a skeptical uh, gaze. They suffer and so do we. And that has brought us closer together. Uh, and so there has been a lot of, what shall I say, almost... Um, understandable and necessary trust as priests and bishops shared with the burden that we were all carrying and that we were all kind of afflicted with the collective guilt of sin. But priests, by what their brother priests had done, terrible deeds of, of perversion in the past, we bishops with, some of our bishops had done it, but even worse, some of our bishops reassigned abusers after they were aware of it. Not as many as is thought, but they still did. That was a collective carrying the cross that in some ways brought priests and bishops more closely together. So I I know it might sound like I'm contradicting myself, but while there was a real, 
There was a real uh, fissure that developed in the trust between priests and bishops. In other ways, there was a deeper set. There was a deeper sense of trust that was uh, that was recovered. We'll end this episode where we began, with the question of how the crisis has affected priests personally. I think, on the one hand, it strengthened my vocation in the sense that I. I wanted to be the best uh, that I could be for the people of God. Father Jude D'Angelo. There was uh, seemingly this recommitment inside of inside of me to uh, to the church and to representing uh, the priesthood of Jesus Christ um, as best I can. Um, on an emotional level, um, it was very very tiring and emotionally draining. Uh, to go through that again. And I think that, <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm, I don't think I'm unique in this. I was wondering if there was a monastery I could go to, you know, to escape all of the discussions about, um, and, and to just uh, be able to pray um, and, and, and serve our Lord by praying, which, which really was not very uh, feasible. Many priests had this reaction. Where can I go to get away from all of this? Unlike most lay people who could ignore it or at least compartmentalize it away from their work or family life, priests were confronted with the crisis and its fallout day after day. Through it all, Father Jude focuses on what he is called to do. We can't be defined by this scandal. We really need to be out there and loving people and talking about how much God loves them and how much power they have to transform the society in which we live. I think our faith needs to define us. We need to get out there and we need to show how our faith is put into action, how we take care of the poor, how we take care of unwed mothers and their children, how we are assisting the elderly. I think that goes beyond a specific, you know, religious or lay vocation. That is the vocation we are given as Catholic Christians. And I think we have to fulfill that. And my hope is that the men who are in formation now, whether they're in religious communities and especially our diocesan seminarians, that what they realize is what a privileged priesthood is and that it is always not something that raises you above people, but it makes you realize how much the people of God give to you as a human being and as a priest, and that the response to the people of God has got to be the cross of Jesus Christ, that the cross is not something that we can avoid. Right now, the cross is that those of us who have not committed sin or crime in this way have to carry that burden. And other generations, it might have been different. So we need to be humble uh, with God's people. We need to be courageous in serving others and in taking care of those who have been abused. Um, and we need to be always uh, in relationship with Jesus Christ, or otherwise we just are not going to make it in this world.
Next time on Crisis, dealing with disillusionment and betrayal and the stories we tell about the abuse crisis. We'll talk to J.D. Flynn of the Catholic News Agency, Mar Munoz Visoso of the USCCB, and poet James Matthew Wilson. From the Catholic Project at the Catholic University of America, you're listening to Crisis. Our podcast team includes myself, Carnal Zoya, executive producer Stephen White, producer Jeff Gosser, and communications manager and writer Sarah Perla. Sound designed by Paul Veitkus. Music courtesy of Jay Tibbetts and APM Music. Our theme song was composed by Gautam Shrikashan. Marketing and distribution provided by Jeff Umbro of The Podglomerate. Cover art by Tom Grillo. And a special thanks to Karen Michelle and all of our guests. For an episode guide or for more information about The Catholic Project, go to thecatholicproject.org. If you've been sexually assaulted, you can receive confidential support 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. If the abuse is related to the Catholic Church, you can also contact your diocese victim assistance coordinator. Contact information for each diocese is available at usccb.org forward slash VAC.